Probably one of the most scary moments I have ever had as a father happened about 20 years ago when my oldest son Josiah was two or three years old. And we were visiting some family members and he and I had walked out into the backyard and the big dog was sitting on the ground. His name was Spunky. And Josiah kind of walked up to the dog and Spunky kind of looked at him and he started kind of laughing and looked at me and looked at the dog. And then all of a sudden, completely out of character, this dog got up and lunged at Josiah and grabbed him right by the side of the face and bit him and then ran off. And then Josiah fell to the ground with his face away from me. So I, I literally thought this dog had pulled the side of his face off. And I, I'm running over and I, I flipped him over. And fortunately, he just had puncture wounds here, puncture wound here, and a puncture wound here. So next time you see him, if you see a couple little scars here, now you know why. But we we're so thankful this dog didn't get his eye. And that was kind of a, a bit of a shocking moment because we had been around this dog before. And it was just sort of out, out of character. I won't tell you what happened to that dog after that, but I can tell you that it, it didn't exist the next morning. I'll tell you that much. It's a good reminder that when we're around dogs, you have to differentiate between friendly dogs and dangerous dogs, especially if they are sizable animals. I mean, if you have a vicious chihuahua, But if it's a bigger dog, you might find yourself in a bit of a difficult situation. So differentiating between a, a safe dog and a dangerous dog is, is, is pretty critical to your health and well-being. Now, the Word of God actually refers to false teachers as dogs. In the ancient Near East, calling someone a dog was an insult because they were considered a, an unclean animal. And as the word of God refers to those that would teach falsehood as dogs, it's warning us as well to differentiate between false teachers and truth teachers. So as we enter into the book of Philippians today, this is the lesson, the fundamental lesson that I want to sort of drive home because this is where the, the word of God takes us, that we need to learn as Christians to differentiate between good dogs and bad dogs, between truthful teachers and false teachers. And if we don't, our spiritual lives can quickly be ruined. We can be taken off course. We can fall into lies, heresy, falsehood that can have a very significant negative impact upon our spiritual walks. We don't want to be lied to. <clears throat> we don't want to be misled. We need to be proactive in making sure that we understand the word of God, that we know who Christ is, what he has accomplished, and what his purposes are for our lives so that when we're exposed to teachers and preachers, when we're in conversations with people that may be peddling a certain ideology, <clears throat> that we can differentiate between truth and error and live in light of the salvation that is ours in Christ. In other words, we don't want to be pushed off course. We don't want to be taken out. We don't want to be led astray. We want to make sure we understand the word of God clearly. So join me in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be studying the first 11 verses today. And this cluster of verses really is a warning 
to the people of God to avoid false teachers. And by the way, false teachers don't just show up in churches, folks. They show up in the academy. They show up in medical institutions. They show up in courts. They might show up over the picket fence. There's a lot of false teaching, a lot of false ideologies that we need to be able to identify and combat as followers of Christ. Here's how the passage begins. Paul writes to us, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I write the same things to you. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. So out of the gates, here we have this command to rejoice, which is sort of a theme woven through the book of Philippians. Thus, it's often called the epistle of joy. We want to be joyful. We want to rejoice. And Paul expresses his uh, desire to keep them safe. He wants to keep them safe, but he wants to provide them a certain kind of safety, spiritual safety. And again, spiritual safety grows in our lives if we understand the truth of God's word so we can protect ourselves from falsehood. Moving forward in the text, I want to take this text apart into sort of two main pieces. We're going to study verses 2 to 6 together and then 7 to 11. And here's truth number one that I want you to hear, understand, digest, and apply. This is a practical and theological lesson about our salvation, sort of out of all the doctrines we could discuss today. We're going to discuss the doctrines of salvation. This is fundamental to protecting yourself from falsehood. You need to understand who you are, what Christ has accomplished, and what the implications of that are for your life. So it's a theological and a very practical message. And the first cluster of verses remind us of this critical, critical, critical truth. That life is not about your status. That your salvation is not about your status. That what the things that define you in the eyes of God are not things in relationship to your status. So this is a common lie that leads people astray, even in some Christian churches, supposedly Christian churches, certainly among false teachers and certainly in the world that your value is derived from your status, that your salvation, your prosperity is derived from your horizontal status. Look what the text says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put, what's the next word? No confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So this is Paul just sort of giving us a little bit of his resume here. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he kind of rattles off things that may not be impressive to you and be impressive to the modern listener, but would have been impressive in Paul's context as the Christian church was taking heat from Judaizers and those that would try to foist onto the Christian faith some of the old covenant 
marks and symbols and requirements. So he says here, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So what's going on here? There's some cultural baggage that he's bringing into the text. There's some There's a bit of a theological background here that he's bringing into the text. So let's try to just make sure we understand what he's saying before we drive for application. So what was going on is that in the early church, as people came to faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel message was essentially that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus Christ is the perfect God-man. Fully God, fully man, in one. He lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin. He died in our place on our behalf as our substitute. And now listen to this. The only way to be made right with God is for the righteousness, the spiritual perfection, and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to be applied to you, even though by nature you and I are sinners. So in other words, the Pharisees had it wrong. They had taught, along with some of the other Jewish sects like the Sadducees, that it was your external Jewishness that made you right with God. And while this is a little bit difficult for modern listeners to wrap their minds around, the sign and seal, the physical sign and seal of entrance into the old covenant was circumcision performed on male children at eight days of age. And then obedience to the law, that was pretty significant. Being a Pharisee, meaning meaning if you were a leader of the Jews, that, that was pretty significant. If you're of the tribe of Benjamin, whoa, that's an extra check mark. That's pretty significant. So these these were the kinds of external marks and social qualifications and religious qualifications that Judaizers love to flaunt and by extension to try to foist on, to try to force on Christian converts. And Paul's concern was that these Christians that had been saved and rescued by the grace and work of the Lord Jesus Christ would be led back into an inadequate understanding of righteousness before God, that they would think, oh, well, maybe Jesus isn't enough. Maybe grace isn't enough. Maybe the sacrifice of Christ isn't enough. Maybe we need to go back and avail ourselves of all these things that these false teachers were promoting. Now, by the way, we don't want to diminish any of those rites and symbols under the old covenant. God put circumcision in place for a reason. God called people to obey his law for a reason. The problem is the Pharisees got it wrong. They didn't understand that these were just marks and symbols and reminders and part of expressed righteousness. They began to think of these things as what makes you right before God. What makes you righteous before God. So we're not diminishing the Old Old Testament in any way, shape, or form. We're just reminding people that these these 
Pharisaical teachers, these old covenant teachers had, had got it wrong. And so when Paul says, actually, we're the circumcised, he's not referring to the physical mark of circumcision performed on male babies. He's referring to a different kind of circumcision. What the scriptures refer to as circumcision of the heart. Now, we usually don't call people dogs, not polite, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. But because the Pharisaical Jews tended to call Gentiles, those outside of covenant, the covenant dogs, Paul sort of returns the insult to them. And then he redefines circumcision as a heart matter. And he basically tells us, this is in verse 3, that the confidence that we have is not in our external qualifications. It's not in our status as defined by other people. Our confidence is in the work of the Spirit. It's in the work of the Lord. And again, he's not downplaying the benefits of those acts under the ancient covenants of God given to the children of Israel. But he's saying Christians are the real, quote-unquote, circumcision group. So he's using this language now metaphorically. Christians, those that are trusting in Jesus Christ are the real circumcision group. And there's, there's three things that mark them. Do you see them? They worship by the Spirit. So when we worship, folks, what we're not interested in doing is just teaching you rituals and patterns of behavior. Maybe you were raised in a liturgical church or you've been to liturgical churches where you just kind of come in and there's an order of service, you do this, you stand up here, you sit down, you wave, you do whatever you do, and you don't even know what's going on. You just go through the the ritual, the rhythms. In and of themselves, they may not be bad, but there's no meaning to them. It's not driven by the spirit. It's just driven by religiosity. We're not into that. We worship in spirit and in truth. Heartfelt, genuine worship is what God is calling us to. Secondly, we glory in Jesus. What's the opposite of glorying in Jesus? Glorying in the flesh. Saying, hey, don't I look like hot stuff? Look what I accomplished. See how righteous I am. Do you want to see my resume? Maybe you'll be impressed by it. No. We don't glory in self. We're not glory hogs. We don't point people to ourselves. We point people to Jesus. And even if we've been, quote unquote, successful... It's insofar as we have manifested the presence, the virtues, the values of Jesus into the world. That's part of being the true circumcision group. And third, we have no confidence in the flesh. Folks, we don't try to obtain standing with God through our good deeds. Man, this needs to be preached hard. Because this is where false religion gets it wrong. Regardless of the name of the religion, this is where they all get it wrong. False religion is all about what you need to do, how you need to perform in order to be made right with God or the gods or whatever you choose to name the divine deities that supposedly rule this world. Paul denounces these tactics. But interestingly, he's like, you know, if if you wanted to play the credential game, I I got a few credentials going on. I got a few credentials. And he kind of rattles them off. But he's like, who cares? In a room like this, some of you have some pretty impressive credentials. You're well-schooled, you're well-spoken, you've accomplished much, you're an outstanding person in your 
field of interest or your vocation, good for you. You should excel and seek to serve the Lord in all of your talents with, with excellence. But at the end of the day, who cares? When it comes to God, we stand before him, men and women, slave and free, rich and poor. And he's not like, okay, well, the rich people can go over here and the, you know, the well-schooled ones can go over here and you guys sort of stand off to the side. It doesn't matter to him. Jesus' primary ministry, if you study the gospels, was to middle-class people. When he called the, the 12 disciples to follow him, they were essentially you know, middle-class working folks. But at the same time, he reached out to rich people. He reached out to the disadvantaged, the, the lepers, the blind, the lame. Jesus reached out to everyone. And the message was the same. You need to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. There wasn't a message for the rich, a message, different message for the middle class, a different message for the poor. It was all the same message. Now, when we think about this teaching, many of you who, who you know, are used to coming to church, you're like, yeah, I already know this. I know this. So why do I need to hear it again? Because this week you've been lied to. And you're going to be lied to in the coming week as well. Maybe you noticed the lies. Maybe they were just really subtle. But society lies to us all the time. The subtle messages from advertisers and marketers and educators is that your status is defined by things like your physique. Your physique. So we have a lot of people nowadays that, are, that work out in the gym and they're not, they're not actually working out because they want to be healthy. They work out just because they want to be noticed. This is not a good reason to work out. They're, they're, they're attention hogs. When they dress, it's not just to make yourself presentable. It's because they're looking for attention. There's a hollowness inside of them. And they've bought into the lie that it's their physique that matters the most. There's, there's other folks that believe that wealth defines you. So we're called to work. Six, the Bible says you work six days, six days, you rest in the seventh. So we're called to work. It says, if you don't work, there's a problem. The Bible says, he who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. So in, in God's law, he calls us to work. Work is good. And work is, is uh, the, the work that you do hopefully contributes to your own family and the good of society. So we're, we're into working. We're not into laziness. We're not into living off the system. You know, as Christians, we want to work hard. And if someone is disadvantaged, we want to be able to provide for them. So we're all into work. And if in the process of working, you make a lot of money, good for you. If God gives you a bushel basket or a Dixie cup, that's your stewardship. You need to use it for God's glory. So we're not, oh, if you're a rich person, you're bad. If you have money, you're bad. If you have a job, you're a bad person. No, we're not into that. But we need to remind ourselves that the amount of wealth that we have at the end of the day doesn't matter. It's not part of our status. When you're born, how much money do you bring into the, the world? You ever seen a baby born bringing a few bags of gold with them or no? Babies are always born naked, always. And that's how we die too. You don't take any of it with you. Proof of it is if you go over to Egypt and you visit some of those fascinating pyramids, remember what they did? They, they'd spent 
spend years and years and years building these giant pyramids. And they'd, they'd prepare for the Pharaoh's entrance into the next world. They'd bring in boats so that he could cross the river and they bury slaves with him and sometimes his wives and his children and money and wealth and just all kinds of things were packed into those tombs to prepare for the next life. Three, 4,000 years go by, we open the pyramids, they're all, it's all still there. You don't take any of it with you. You're born naked, you die naked. So your wealth is not ultimately what defines you either. Your schooling, hey, it's good to go to school. Nowadays, you probably gotta be careful what school you go to because <laughs> there's a lot of indoctrination centers in our culture today masquerading as institutions of higher learning. But that aside, going to school is a good thing. Going to school aimlessly and pointlessly is maybe not wise. But if you have a particular career in mind and that requires credentialing or certain education, hey, we're into that. I, I did a lot of schooling myself. I wouldn't have if I didn't need to. But I, I felt it was beneficial to my role. So I just kept going to school. That's a good thing. But your credentials, your, your educational background has nothing to do with your status before God. If you have five PhDs or never went to school at all, before God, it doesn't matter. That's not what defines you. Your status is not tied up in these horizontal, man-centered credentials. So I just remind you of these things because these are the lies that you're gonna be told and you need to be able to identify them. Those are the bad dogs that will destroy you. You need to identify them and understand how dangerous they are to taking you off course spiritually. And then we have false religion. And by the way, you know, there's a lot of very interesting ideologies and philosophies of life and religion, world religions. You can take courses on this. You can read books on it. There's all sorts of world religions, but let me just summarize it all for you. I, I'm gonna give you in like four or five points, the basic message of every false religion. And it starts off with a truism, but then it leads somewhere not so good. The truism is we are inadequate. So in biblical Christianity, we call it sin. We've sinned against God. And if you look at all world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Orthodox Judaism, they, they all acknowledge that, you know, we, we are inadequate. We've sinned, like something's wrong. And having acknowledged that, then the next thing is, well, how do you get redemption? How do you get salvation? Or in some religions, how do you get to nirvana? Or how, how, do you, how, do you, how, how do you make sure that you're reincarnated, sort of moving up the chain the next runaround? So it's all about some sort of a redemptive response. How do, what do we do to overcome our inadequacy, our sin? This is, this is where religions take us. And what false religions do is they generally provide you with a code of conduct or a code book and they say, here's your code book. Okay, so you're inadequate, right? You're inadequate. And in order to be made right with Allah or the gods or to re-enter nirvana or whatever, here's your code book, here's your list of rules, here's your do's and don'ts. Just kind of run the same plays and hopefully at the end of the day, God or the gods or luck or providence or whatever it might be, will make all things right. <laughs> well, do you, do you see the problem with that? So you, you acknowledge you're inadequate I acknowledge I, I can never measure up 
to God's standards. So I have a problem and I need to be saved. And you're basically telling me the way out of that is just to be a good little boy. That's how I got here. My problem is because I can't. I can't be a good little boy. I can't measure up. That's why I'm inadequate. So world religions are, the false world religions are essentially like, you have a problem. In order to overcome the problem, do better. But I can't. I keep failing. I I can't even measure up to my own standards. Now that, that is the message of false religions. The message of the Christian gospel is that you're right, you can never measure up. Come to church every week, get baptized, read your Bible every day, and you'll still fail. So what do I do? The righteousness of Christ has to be applied to me, has to be given to me. So instead of trying to do something to impress my way into God's presence, I receive by faith that Jesus Christ did it for me. So you've probably heard this before. False religions say do, biblical Christianity says done. Christ has done something for us. He's actually accomplished something for us. He actually paid for my sins. He wasn't on the cross paying for his own. He paid for my sins. And when I accept him by faith, his righteousness is applied to me. So this is where this gets a little shocking. When God looks at me now, he doesn't say, well, Aaron, you're pretty impressive. Look at all the good little deeds you've done. No, no, he looks at me through the example and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is substituted for me. So Jesus' resume, Jesus' credentials become my credentials. And I haven't even done anything to accomplish this. But Christ's credentials become mine. This is the freeing message of the gospel of grace. We're saved by grace alone, that's God's grace, through faith alone in Christ alone. Not grace alone through my contributions as well, through a little bit of me, through going to church, being a good little boy. It's God's grace. I'm exercising faith in Christ and his credentials, his resume becomes mine. So I do the crime, he does the time. Therefore, when I die and enter into eternity, I don't have to do the time for my own crimes because Jesus Christ has already done the time for my crimes. The righteousness of Christ becomes mine. So the gospel is that Christ's merits, Christ's credentials are applied to us. My responsibility is to repent of my sins, to just say, you're right, I suck. I I can't measure up. I I can't do it. I, I just want to say to you, Lord, sorry for pretending that I can. I'm repenting of my sins and I'm going to receive God's grace and his works and on my behalf, and when I receive that, I am spiritually rebirthed. I'm regenerated, the Bible says. I'm born again. And now God graciously walks with us till death, constantly assuring us of our salvation. So this is super important for us to think about. Have you made the mistake of relying upon your status to define your salvation? Or have you understood that you have no status that's impressive to God, but the status of Christ can be applied to you. And when Christ's status becomes your status, you're good to go for all of eternity. So then the second body of of truth here is found in verses seven to 11. 
And this is sort of just taking it to the next level. And, and, and I want to put it to you this way, that the pursuit of status must be exchanged for the promotion of Christ's status. The pursuit of status must be exchanged for the promotion of Christ's status. This is where the, the scriptures take us. Verse seven says, but whatever gain I had, so you know all his credentials, all his, hey, look, look how great I am, a Pharisee, the Pharisee. I even persecuted the church because I was so committed to my faith. I was circumcised in the eighth day. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Everyone loved me. He says, whatever gain I had, I count it loss for the sake of Christ. His gain, his credentials are, are, are useless or sorry, my, my, my credentials are useless because of Christ. I now have his credentials. In verse eight, Paul writes, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, we'll come back to that. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish. Do you know what rubbish is? It refers to garbage. It refers to animal excrement. It refers to all things disgusting, the kind of stuff you'd find in a garbage dump or in a garbage pile. And what, what, what is in mind when Paul speaks of rubbish? What's the, what's the reference here? Our credentials. Our credentials. So folks, again, some of you, some of us, have from a human perspective accomplished some pretty impressive things. And we should strive for excellence and be the best that we can be with our time, talents, and treasures. But compared to Christ, it's rubbish. It's like one manure pile speaking to another manure pile. Man, I don't stink as much as you. You're both manure piles. Our credentials are manure piles compared to Christ. Now your manure pile might not stink as much as someone else's, but it's still a manure pile. It's still excrement, it's still trash. So we don't boast in these things. You don't go around flaunting your stuff. Hey, look at me, look how smart I am, good looking I am, successful I am, wealthy I am, accomplished I am. Stop it, stop it. By the way, this, this truth here lines up with all of scripture. 700 years before Christ, here's what the prophet Isaiah said. And many of you know this in verse 64, six. Count how many times he uses the word all, by the way. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. All, all, all. Doesn't want us to get away with thinking he's just talking about some. This is all of us. All means all. And what is it that's unclean? Our righteous deeds. Like that, that's kind of, it's, it's a little bit hard to wrap your mind around. So he's basically saying the righteous things you do, the things maybe you got rewarded for or awarded for. It's all garbage. It's all rubbish. It's all excrement compared to Christ. So what we're being called to here is to lose sight of our failed credentials and to point ourselves to and to find joy and blessing in Christ's credentials. So our street cred is Christ's cred. It's not about us. Our street cred is Christ's cred. Your security is because he is your security. You are loved 
because he's benevolent. Remember what it says in verse eight, for his sake, for his sake. This is such a great reminder to us that when we, when we lock this truth down, then we, we go about living our lives and we're like, wow, good reminder. My life's not about me. My life's not about me. My life is about promoting and boasting on and bragging on the Lord Jesus Christ. Brag on Jesus, point people to Jesus. He says, all things, he counts them as rubbish. And then he goes on to say, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I might obtain, may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So this is such a beautiful thing. The benefits and blessings of putting your status aside and pursuing and holding fast to the status of Christ, such a blessed thing, it's so freeing. We walk in the footsteps of Christ. We follow in the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, to gain Christ doesn't mean that we're supposed to earn our salvation because he's already made it clear that we cannot. So it's not that kind of gaining. It's not like, oh, you earned it. I'm gonna pay you for it now. What does it mean to gain? It means his righteousness becomes yours. You gain his righteousness. That's verse nine. Verse 10 you know and participate in his resurrection. Can you think of one very practical blessing to participating in the resurrection of Christ to knowing that when you die, that's not the end? Can you think of one? How about fearlessness? A lot of folks running around scared to death of death, not living lest they die. You notice that? Not living lest they die. Stay, staying home is the least safe thing to do. Especially if it goes on month after month after month. It's like, let's just hit the pause button. Let's not live for the next two years or three years or four years so that we can live. Let's live in fear. Folks, all of us has an expiry date. Thank God we have had no deaths in our church. Based upon the size of our church, just under normal circumstances, we should have about eight funerals a year. We've had zero this year and one last year, but just under normal circumstances. We've had one death in two years. We should have had, by the end of this year, 16. Just under normal circumstances. That's a cool thing. A lot of young folks in the church. I guess you're eating well. I don't know. Good genetics. But let's say we had 16. Let's say it, it doubled to, to 32. Do we all stop living? No, we have resurrection hope. We're not gonna throw ourselves in front of a bus. You know, you, you exercise some common sense, but we have resurrection hope. We're not afraid. Why would we be afraid? I think many of us are like, Lord, please come quickly. I'd kind of like to be with you right now. And we, we're not afraid because we have resurrection hope. Now, I must admit, 
At times, I might be a little afraid of the method of my death, but I'm not afraid of death itself because I know that when I close my eyes in death, I will open my eyes in glory. And this life is just a little wedge of time. And then there's eternity to come. And the reason why we know, we know, we know, we know that we will be resurrected from the grave is because Jesus was resurrected from the grave and his righteousness and his credentials have been applied to us. So his resurrection becomes ours. And then also in verse 10, we suffer for his cause for the assurance of victory. This is kind of important because sometimes when people are in crisis, they, they run to Jesus because they think, oh, Jesus is gonna fix my problems and I won't have any suffering anymore. No, you'll probably have more because the world will hate you and people will misunderstand you and they'll misquote you, and they'll misrepresent you and they'll, they'll think you're a weirdo. But we have the all-surpassing hope of eternal life that puts perspective on all of that. Did you know that part of following Christ is actually suffering for Christ? So I would say, you know, most of the time, it's, it's actually a lot of fun following Jesus. There's great joy and there's happiness and there's relationships and encouragement. But sometimes we also suffer for Christ. And unfortunately in the Western church, we've had it so good for so long that to a large degree, most of us are kind of soft and flabby when it comes to our faith. We're, we're spectators. We have a spectator kind of religion. It's just that ah, good music, good sermon. See you next week. Christ has called us to suffer for him, to lay down our lives, lock, stock and barrel for his honor and glory. But we gladly do so through the eyes of faith because we have the assurance. At the end of the day, as Pastor Jay mentioned earlier, we win because Christ has already won. That's for sure. We may not win every battle, but we have already won the war because Christ has won. So folks, as you consider this message today and you're following Christ this week, be aware, be aware of false teachers that might take you off course. Be aware of the messages that are being whispered in your ear through the media, through your family, even in your own head. Sometimes we lie to ourselves, we're our own worst enemies. Make sure that increasingly you're thinking less of yourself and more of Christ. The quicker we lose ego, the quicker we gain grace. We need to be God-centered rather than self-centered. We're all naturally self-centered. We're trying to wean ourselves off that. You heard of addictions. People have chemical addictions. They're addicted to tobacco. They're addicted to weed. They're addicted to alcohol. We have an addiction to self-centeredness. And the Lord wants to progressively cure us of that so that we're God-centered in our focus. We wanna worship God, this is really important, to acknowledge God, not to try to impress God. We worship him responsively. Not like the, the ancient pagans did, they'd run around, you know, jump, run around Stonehenge or whatever it was, hoping that the gods would bless them. If we just beat ourselves enough or sacrifice enough of our children or dance some crazy dance, maybe the gods will notice. That's not, no, that's, ex that's an exhausting kind of religion. We worship God out of response to his grace, not in order to gain his approval. And finally, his death makes our eternal life possible. Make sure you remind yourself of that often. That's why that beautiful song, one of my favorite songs right now that we did during communion, just exalting the blood of Christ. If you're not used to being in church, you're like, why are they singing about blood? That's kind of weird. 
you're going to start drinking it too. No. Blood refers to the perfection of Christ. His blood was poured out, meaning his life was given up so that we could gain life. That's why we sing about that, because it's life. His blood is where life is found. And our eternal life and our eternal hope is based upon his sacrifice for us. So in a hopeless world, there is great hope. Make sure you've come to Jesus in order to live. And if you have come to Jesus, don't let anybody try to pull you away. Trust in him, serve him, worship him. And in all of that, you will find joy and peace that surpasses all human understanding.